What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Uncensored Christian Podcast. I am starting something new today with this episode where I'm going to be going through scripture and we're going to be studying it. So this is going to be called Scripture Study, where we just pick a part of scripture. Maybe we'll go through a whole book at a time. Maybe we'll jump around. I don't know yet, but I wanted this to be just impromptu. I wanted us to go through this together and just kind of explore how deep God's word truly can get. So we're reading out of Luke chapter 14. And what I normally like to do when I'm reading scripture is read through it once, read through it twice, and then read through it a third time. Because what I found is that the more you read through it, you understand the context better, but then there are things that jump out at you and things that, that you're starting to see and understand that you might not have seen the first time you read through the scripture. So in this series, we're not going to read it two or three times, but I want to go over these passages and, and stop every verse or so and just understand the context and understand what the word is truly trying to say. So let's go ahead and start it off. Luke chapter 14, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, but whatever version or translation of the Bible you got works perfectly fine. So let's go ahead and start in verse one. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. Now, this is important because in Jesus's time, people would watch him closely because a lot of the leaders and a lot of the Pharisees wanted to see Jesus fail. They wanted a reason to try and take down Jesus. So they would watch his every move and see if they could call out anything that he would do wrong so they can try and bring him down. So on to verse two, there was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? Verse four, when they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Now, what's interesting to me is that they refused to answer. And it's funny because they refused to answer because they knew the answer. They knew what Jesus was trying to get them to say. They knew where Jesus was trying to lead them. And they were so set on being right and being religious, quote unquote, that they refused to answer. And it's funny because there's many things in our life and many things that we do that we know is right or wrong. But a lot of times we'll ignore it in that moment because we would rather have the pleasure or we'd rather have the fun. So on to verse five, then he turned to them and said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. My translation says that they could not answer, but in reality, they just didn't want to answer. They knew what the answer was, but they didn't want to answer because it would have proved Jesus right and they would have made them look bad. So they were more focused on saving their own skin than answering truthfully to Jesus. On to verse seven, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. 
then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love this little story here and this illustration that Jesus gives. Because so often in our lives, we feel that our value is found in almost the position or the status in society that we hold. So if we are sitting in a place of importance, somehow we feel that this gives us more value. And what Jesus is trying to say here is, is that if you continue to try and put yourself in a place of importance, you eventually will fall from that importance. But if you come to God and you come to God with the attitude of, I am a sinner, I have so many faults, and I am in need of help. If you come to God with the attitude that you do not have it all figured out, then God then will be able to exalt you. But it's so hard for God to work in the hearts of those who have pride, who feel that they already have everything figured out. Because so often, the only way that we can figure out that we are not as important as we thought is by being put down a few notches. So this is literally advice that Jesus is trying to give them to help them in the long run. So verse 12, then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. And that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Now this I love so much. I love this because Jesus says, look, when you're about to throw a party, when you're about to be a blessing to someone, don't just be a blessing to your friends and your brothers and your relatives and your rich neighbors. Don't be a blessing to people who can be a blessing back to you. In other words, don't just bless someone so you can be blessed. Don't just give something to someone or do them a favor in hopes that somewhere down the road they will owe you that favor. And I love this because Jesus said instead, help those who can't help themselves. Help the poor. Help the crippled. Help the lame and the blind. Be a blessing to those who do not have an ability to bless you back. Because isn't that what uh, servitude is in the first place? Serving those that cannot serve you back. And you may be thinking, well, that's crazy. Maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want to bless people because, yeah, maybe I do want something in return. But I love this because Jesus never asked people to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Because what we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus did not bless those who could bless him back. You notice that? What if Jesus didn't walk by his own words here? What if Jesus only blessed those who could bless him back? Well, here's what's funny is that Jesus would have never been able to bless anybody because there's nobody that can bless God. There's nobody that can give God what he doesn't already possess. And so Jesus's whole character was giving to those who can never repay him. Jesus gave his life to those who can never repay him. Jesus gives you peace when you have no ability to give him peace back. Jesus gives you love when you can never give the same amount of love back to Jesus. So Jesus is saying here, give to those who cannot give back to you. And when you do this, then God will reward you for inviting those who cannot repay you. 
Don't just be a blessing so you can be blessed. On to verse 15. This is the parable of the great feast. Verse 15. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Isn't it, isn't it funny? Because this man in the story prepared a great feast, a great party. He was setting up something of great measure for people that he cared about. But what we see here is three examples of how our love for possessions, our love for Lust, our love for love, many times can overtake our love for God. Because here you have a dude saying, oh, I'm sorry, man, I just got a field. I just got some land. I'm going to have to inspect it. I'll catch you later, though. Then another dude's like, yo, I just bought some oxen, bro. I just bought some oxen. Sorry, God, I just, I just got this new job. <laughs> I'll have to catch you later, man. Sorry, God, I just I got this new car. Uh, I'll have to catch you later. It's funny how sometimes we can value possessions to the point where we will ignore God. And then the last one, he said, I got married. I can't come. This is funny because this is one I can relate to a lot. Because we all go through that honeymoon stage when you fall in love with someone and you find that person you're supposed to be with and then you marry him. You fall into that honeymoon stage where they can do no wrong. They are perfect. They're all that you ever wanted. They fulfill all your needs. And I remember this because when me and my wife first got married, she was all I could think about. Forget me reading my Bible. Forget me taking time away from her to, to go to church. I was all about my wife. And so I can kind of relate to this person here. Sorry, I just got married, homie. So I can't come. But it's our love many times for things and possessions that will lead us away from the feast that God is inviting us to. So verse 20, 21, the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious. He was ticked. He was not happy and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you, you find to come so that the house will be full for none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Once again, we see this master of his house inviting the people who otherwise would have never been invited, inviting those that society left out, that the world left out the very people who were supposed to be the ones attending the feast see this is this is a callback to the pharisees who are trying to catch jesus in the act of doing something wrong they're trying to get jesus in trouble and jesus is saying look you're just like these people that i've been inviting to the feast i want you all to be at this feast but you continuously believe that you have better things to do you believe that it's better to hold up your religious uh uh your religious physique 
in your status in the political world. You believe that's more important. You believe the way you dress is more important. You believe the possessions you have is more important. You believe the fact that you tithe is more important than the fact that you trust in me. And so Jesus is calling out the Pharisees and saying, look, I'm inviting you to this banquet, but you want to give me the cold shoulder. So watch me invite the very people that you are disgusted with. Watch me invite the very people that you would turn away from. Watch me invite the blind. Watch me invite the lame. Watch me invite the people that society would forget about. And I want everyone to come. I got no, I got no, uh, a lack of room in my house for these people. And he's saying for none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. He's calling out the Pharisees. He's calling out the Pharisees. So let's hop into verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Hold up, what? If if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else? When I first read this, I thought, yo, Jesus, chill, dog. Like, like I'm not about to hate my wife. I'm not about to hate my, my daughter or my mom. Like, like, what are you talking about? But it's really important. And this is what's so cool about Jesus is Jesus oftentimes you use really a charge words like this in charge language and in stories that were colorful and that caught people off guard because it got their attention. He really wanted to, to bring to light how much you need to love him compared to even the people in your life. Because he doesn't just say you must hate everyone else. He says by comparison. So if we're comparing me and everyone else in your life, you must love me so much that by comparison, it may seem like you hate them. So Jesus is saying you need to love me. You need to Trust me, you need to pursue me more than your father, your mother, your wife, your children, even your own life. You must put me first above all else if you want to truly be my disciple. And he says, otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. I want to really focus on Jesus saying, if you do not carry your own cross, because especially in modern Christianity, we have the saying, you know, oh, it's just a cross I have to bear. And we'll say this and and we'll go back to this verse and be like, yeah, Jesus said, carry your own cross. And there's just a cross I have to bear. And when we talk about that, we talk about like, oh, you know, work's getting tough. It's just a cross I got to bear. Oh, you know, me and my wife have been fighting. It's just a cross I got to bear. Oh, you know, coronavirus. Oh man, this is a cross that we all have to bear. But what's funny is, is that in the context of this verse, what is Jesus really saying? Jesus isn't saying, yeah, the cross that you have to carry is just, you know, some burdens here and there that are going to be tough. No, 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 no. Because see, in this time, to carry your cross meant that you gave up everything and you were willing to die. Because what did Jesus do when he carried his cross? He was on his way to death. 
A cross was not a symbol of just something tough. A cross wasn't even something that you would brag about to your friends like, yeah, it's just a cross I have to bear. A cross was a symbol of shame, a symbol of disgrace, and it was a symbol of death. And so Jesus saying that you have to carry your own cross is so charged. It's so powerful. It means so much more than just a little burden and a little uh, rough patch in your life. It means that you need to give up everything. You need to be willing to be shamed, to be disgraced, and to be to, to be ready to die for me. You need to be ready to carry your own cross. Let's go to verse 28. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. Then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford it. This is such an important message to those who decide to follow Christ. Because he's saying, look, before you decide to follow me, I need you to understand and recognize what it's going to cost. You need to understand that when you when you follow me and you call me your Messiah, that there are going to be some things in your life that change. There are going to be some enemies that come out of the woodwork to attack you that you once thought were your friends. There are going to be hardships that you face. There are going to be struggles that you battle because you bear my name. Jesus is saying, I need you to understand that this is not going to be an easy road. This isn't going to be sunshine and rainbow. So before you follow me, you need to understand that you're going to have to give up your life. Before you follow me, you're going to have to understand that there are going to be some friends that you're going to have to distance yourself from. Before you follow me, you're going to have to understand that there are going to be people who you once trusted who are now cursing you because you've changed your ways. Because otherwise, if you don't understand this and you're not prepared, and you don't understand that temptation is still going to attack you, and you don't understand that just because you follow me, you're not going to all of a sudden be rich and wealthy. You need to understand the cost because if you don't, you could end up being the laughing stock because you'll go into it so passionately, not fully understanding what it means to follow me. And I don't want you to be like the person that builds a house but didn't understand how much money they needed to finish it. I don't want you to start something that you cannot finish. On the verse 31, or what king would go to war against another king? without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good, neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor. See, just like he says here, flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. This makes me think of how sometimes we can get into what I call comfortable Christianity. We can get into this mindset 
We can get into this habit almost, this lifestyle, where we claim to love God. We come to God when we struggle, but everything else, when it comes to God, is put on the back burner. We don't pray. We don't talk to God. We don't read the word. We, we do nothing. We're, we're almost like flavorless salt. We're salt without the, the saltiness. We're just kind of there. And if you, if you live in this lukewarm Christianity where you're not, you're not flavorful, you're just kind of there. Who's it good for? Jesus says it's not good for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people around you. It's doing nothing in your life. So he's saying, I need you to open up your ears and hear and understand. I need you to make sure that the salt in your life, that the spirit that you do, that you have when you walk with me is constantly flavorful, that you never let go of what it truly means to be my disciple. And for us to truly do this, we have to understand the costs of what it takes to follow God. Man, I thank y'all for walking through Luke chapter 14 with me. I hope this was good. This was all impromptu. I figured I want to start doing this and I'm going to start doing this more, maybe once or twice a week, go through a chapter in the Bible and just try and unpack it, try and unpack what's going on. I feel like this will help somebody with their study. Yo, I thank y'all so much for listening. I hope that this message, or I hope that this study inspires you and and helps you learn something new today. I will catch y'all on the next episode. Peace out.